Luke chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In Psalm 139, David prays to the Lord, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It is not an easy thing for us to subject our hearts to God's search, to His examination. It's not an easy thing at all for us to search our own hearts and to know our hearts simply for the fact that our hearts are deceptive more deceptive than we can know, the Bible says. And yet in Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives us a help. He gives us a help to search our hearts and to to know our hearts. He says in verse 34, which is something that we'll look at next week, but he says in verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to know your heart, Follow your money. There are many ways to know our hearts, many tests to um, gauge our hearts and our spiritual condition by, but this one way is vital. It's crucial. As many times as Jesus spoke on it, we must know that it's a crucial way to examine where we are in our relationship with God. How close, how conformed to Jesus, or how distant. If we must know our hearts, and we must, We must follow our money. And are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be searched out? Are we willing to be examined by God? Are are we willing to be unmasked, to have the cover taken off and have Jesus expose any hidden darkness within us whatsoever? We must. If we will know our hearts, we must follow our money. And if we will reorient our hearts to God, We must reorient the use of our money toward him. Jesus has been teaching his disciples. And a man speaks up in the crowd right in the middle, it feels like, of what Christ is saying. It says, someone says in the crowd to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we should have done this already, but I want to stop right now and just have us bow our heads and bow our hearts to the Lord. And I want to ask you, as we seek his help to understand his word and to get all the conviction that we need, would you pray 
to the Lord in your own heart that you will be searched out and He will know your heart. Ask Him that He will try you and know your thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in you whatsoever and pray, plead that He will lead you, lead your family, lead us as His people in the way everlasting. Let's go to Him. Father, we come to You and we ask you that you would that you would help us and that you would uncover any sin in our hearts that needs to be exposed that needs to be brought into the light father we are speaking today about one of the most sensitive and and personal areas of our lives and it is it is so easy for us to get uh to get our ire up, to get stubborn, to, to have our hearts hard and to cut off the Word from entering into our souls. And I pray, Father, that every heart here would be humbled before You and would want to be searched and would want to be known by You, would want to be rid of any sin or any resistance to You and be led in the only way of life, the way everlasting. So would you please, according to your grace in Christ, pour out your Holy Spirit here that there might be all the searching that we need, all of the conviction that we need. And we ask, Father, that you would do an awesome work of God in our hearts, in our midst today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Jesus has been teaching his disciples when a man seems like he is rather rudely interrupting, says, teacher, he makes this demand, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Who hasn't seen a case of inheritance dispute? I think we have all seen it and we have seen what disastrous effects it can have on a family. Well, it's having a disastrous effect on this particular household. And this man, because Jesus is a religious teacher, and this would not be terribly uncommon for, you know, one of the Jewish people to look to one of their spiritual guides and teachers for intervention in these matters. And that's what he looks for with Jesus. But, you know, you know, we say sometimes that there's no stupid question. That's not true. This man is asking a stupid question, comes out of, as a demand, but this really, I mean, Jesus has been focusing on the inner man. He has been telling his disciples to be on guard against hypocrisy. Be careful about, you know, having a, a mask of outward religion that is hiding inner darkness. He is telling them not to neglect their souls. So this man, while Jesus is speaking of the inner man, demands that Jesus address these outward concerns. Christ is urgent about the eternal. That's the context here. And yet this man is obsessed with the temporal. Jesus is speaking of being God's possession. And this man's only concern is getting his possessions, what he feels should be coming to him. Jesus is cutting to the heart the way He does with all that conviction with which He preaches. 
But this man is only concerned with getting his cut of the inheritance. And you have to wonder, and I know we didn't read the verses before, so you might not get the feel of it, how abrupt this is, but you really have to wonder, can this man even hear a word that Jesus is saying? Has he heard a word yet? Now Jesus is going to address now his money concerns, but not according to this man's requests. He's going to pick up on this question and get all of the indicators, all of the signs from this question. And he knows from his question, he knows this man's heart. So he takes all the indicators and he wants to use them to pierce this man's heart. And you wonder as Jesus addresses him in the crowd, does he start to listen? Does he begin to tune in to what Jesus says? We don't know. The text doesn't say Was his heart pierced? Are we willing to listen to Christ on the matters of wealth and possessions? Do you want to be cut to the heart by the word of Christ? Do you want to be cut to the heart? The instinctive reaction is no. Why would I want to be cut to the heart? But if the piercing of Christ's word would bring you in your life to be more pleasing to Him, then wouldn't you want to be cut to the heart? Because this is what Christians want. We want to be pleasing to Him. So our response to Christ when He speaks to us in the Word ought to be, cut me open and make me whole. Cut me open if you must and make me whole. Draw me closer to you. Bring my life into conformity to what you command. So Jesus now speaks first. He says, man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you, that's not why I'm here. That's not what I have come for. But let us get to the heart of the matter. Deeper than your temporal concern, let's get to the heart. He says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Now there's there's basically two kinds of covetousness. We're going to address one this week. This will be especially convicting, I think, but there's a second kind. See, there's the greed and the lust for riches on one hand. We know that's covetousness, obviously. When you know we, we have more than enough and we love it and we just want to heap up and we want to hoard. There's that covetousness. But then Jesus next is going to address anxiety and how we covet when we don't have enough, when we struggle to make ends meet and we're in a state of worry. So there's when he says all covetousness, there are multiple forms that we need to be careful of. Again, we'll just focus on one this week. But there's a lot of comfort in what Jesus says next. So come back next week if you're able. Don't have a church family of your own. Come back next week and after conviction we'll get comfort. Next Sunday, Lord willing. He says, Be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think that there are two basic reasons why we are such easy prey for covetousness. Number one is because we feel like my money is my money is my money. And so is all my stuff. 
And I have the right to do with my money and my possessions what I want. But the truth is that we don't have that right because they're not. That is, they're not ours. Ultimately, our wealth and our possessions are not our own. We are managers. We are stewards of the possessions that God so graciously gives to us. We must not think of ourselves as owners, but managers of what the Lord gives to us. Now, Jesus does say his possessions there at the end of verse 15, and we talk about mine, we talk about ours. I think that's legitimate, but we must keep in mind that ultimately these things are not our own. We are servants of the living God. Again, we are stewards of the possessions that He gives us to manage. Your life and your breath and your being are His. You belong completely to Him. Physical and spiritual. Material and immaterial. You belong wholly to Him. Head, heart, hand, and everything you can hold in your hands belongs to God. There is not a square inch of the cosmos that does not belong to Him. Every cell in your body is His. And every last cent that we have is His as well. If you are a Christian, if you have Jesus alone as your Lord and your Savior, then you belong to Him twice over. You belong to Him first of all, just like everybody else, because all people are His creation. He is the King. Our lives are not our own. But we who belong to Jesus in salvation are doubly His. Because God not only has made us, He has purchased us. Not with precious metals like silver and gold, but as we know, as the Word of God declares, with the precious blood of Christ, we belong to Him. He made us, and He purchased us. So we are His twice over. Do you resent that? I doubt it. I doubt it. I don't resent that. I don't want to be my own. I want to belong to Him. And so why should I withhold my money from Him? Why should I withhold His money from Him? Listen. Something we must understand. Something that you need as a conviction of your heart is this truth. If you're going to give to God your heart, you cannot withhold your money. If you're going to give to God your heart, you, you can't withhold your money. So that's, that's the first reason that we fall, we are easy prey for covetousness because we think this is mine. Mine and only mine. And I can do with what I have as I please. But that's not true. We belong entirely to God. Managers, not owners. Second, this is an easy trap for us to fall into because we rather naturally do what everyone else is doing that's not plainly evil. We do what everyone else is doing that's not plainly evil. So we don't bamboozle anybody out of their money but we don't necessarily shy away from blowing our own. 
But what is not plainly evil is not necessarily holy. What is not plainly evil is not necessarily holy. And we cannot go the way of the world because we are not like the world. We are different. We have been called out. We belong to this God. We are set apart. We are holy. We are different. Following Christ is countercultural, or it's not following Christ. We're going to look different from the world. Our views, our perspectives, our plans, our dreams, our ambitions, desires, motives, all of that is going to be different from the world. The, the way that we use our money is going to be different from the world. Different from the world, we hunger and thirst after righteousness. Different from the world, we rejoice in the day of persecution. We're the people who walk by faith and not by sight, which is highly unusual. And also, we consecrate all of our possessions and all of our money unto God because we belong to Him and we are different. So those two reasons are why we are easy prey to covetousness because we think of everything as our own and we so naturally assimilate into the world. But one, we are not our own. And two, therefore, we are very, very different from the world. Now, Jesus tells, beginning in verse 16, a very well-known parable. Let's read it again. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Moment of confusion. Light bulb goes off. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you are set. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now everybody has this guy pegged. His perspective is a fool's perspective. His plans are fool's plans. All of that. Everybody has this guy pegged. It's not hard to read him at all. You have plans too. What you're going to do with your money. You have short-term plans and you have long-term plans. How you might spend it today. How you might spend your next paycheck. What you're saving up for. Uh, Long-term also. We, We have plans. And Jesus is calling you and he is calling me to ask ourselves and to search our hearts. How much like the fool are your plans? How much like this rich fool is your perspective of wealth and possessions? Again, we can read this guy like an open book, right? Can we read our own hearts? Can we see by the flow of our money, say over the last year, how much our perspective, our pursuits and our plans are like this man's. I want to cover this parable like this. Let's make four observations about covetousness through this passage. And let's treat each of them in turn and let's examine our hearts to see if these things are in us. Okay, here's here's the four things, four observations. First of all, The covetous person has no heart for God. Second, 
the covetous person gives no thought to others. Third, the covetous person is deceived about what life really is, what life really means, where it's found and all of that. And fourth, the covetous person is clueless about the judgment. And it all means that covetousness is foolishness, as the Lord says in verse 20. Let's go back over this parable a little bit. This man who is already rich has had a great year. It's a bumper crop year. Now, the first thing that we need to acknowledge is what this man doesn't acknowledge or whom he doesn't acknowledge. In all of this inner dialogue that we see here in these verses, where is God? Where is God in the conversation that he's holding with himself? You can't find him. Look at all of the eyes and all of the mys in this text. It says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down and build. There I will store all my grain and my goods, etc., etc. He doesn't give God thanks. He doesn't acknowledge God's ownership. And he doesn't inquire concerning God's will. And if we are not going to look like this man in the possessions that God entrusts to us, then we must do those three things on a regular, I would even say daily basis. We must give God thanks for what He gives to us. We must acknowledge His ownership. And we must inquire in His Word concerning His will. Or we'll end up looking just like Him. But this man, his whole inner dialogue is godless. It's godless. Therefore, the covetous heart has no room for God. Look at how he, uh, look at how he talks to himself. You, you might talk to yourself. Uh, a lot of us do. This guy takes it to a whole new level. And I think, you know, Jesus in verse 20, he really brings down the hammer of conviction. If anybody has a smile on their face because of the story, verse 20, they all just like, uh, you know, he brings down the hammer. But in verse 19, I mean, this is, it's, it's pretty funny because this guy, he goes so far in talking to himself as to, he talks to himself today about what he's going to talk to himself about tomorrow. I mean, that's getting to a, a whole new level of kind of nutty. And, and Jesus' point isn't to say, you know, this guy is a, you know, belongs in the loony bin or something like that. And that's, you know, the amusing part, like, good grief. I mean, I thought I was bad. But this guy, again, he talks about, talks to himself about what he's going to talk about when he talks to himself tomorrow. I will say to my soul, soul, I really like you. Soul, you got it good. And I, I think there is, it is amusing. It, it's supposed to be humorous. Um, Jesus wants us to see that this is a little wacky. The reason is because he wants us to see how nuts it is to be self-obsessed. And this man is super self-obsessed. And it's nuts. The covetous heart erases God from the picture, wherever He is. 
rubs out God and paints in self as the focal point. Puts God out and puts self at the center. Again, everyone makes plans for their money. Short-term plans or long-term. There's plans in there somewhere, right? Just even how you're going to spend it tomorrow. We make plans. Where is God in the plans? Is God in the picture? Even more than that, is God the focal point? Is God the focal point? Give God thanks for His gifts. Acknowledge God's ownership and inquire of God concerning His will. Or be a fool. Or be a fool. Now when you don't start with God, the errors, they're coming down the pipe. You know, just multiplying. They're coming. And when you don't have a heart for God, you don't give a thought to others. That's what's next. And so this man has a plan to satisfy all of his wants, but he doesn't consider at all how to help others with their needs. Now before I we talk about those who don't have their needs met, we need to ask a question. Is God pleased when you enjoy using His money on your pleasures? Is God pleased when you enjoy using His money on your pleasures? A big, albeit qualified, yes. God is pleased. God is pleased. In fact, the Bible says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And and the context of that passage is Paul is talking about riches. And he's warning about riches. And he says God does richly provide us with everything to enjoy. And if you can thank God for the pleasure, I mean, there are evil pleasures, there are evil purchases that you cannot thank God for and you should not have in your life. But if you can thank God for the pleasure, then the pleasure is holy. Everything God has made and given is made holy by the prayer of thanksgiving, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy. So you don't need to feel guilty about eating out with your family, at a, even at a really nice restaurant. You don't need to feel guilty about going on vacation. You don't need to feel guilty about splurging extra on your spouse. You don't need to feel guilty. Enjoy the gifts that God has given in Him. Enjoy all in Him. And it is holy. And yet, we know our tendency. The truth still stands. When your family's needs are satisfied, do you devise a plan to help a needy neighbor? When you have a surplus in your life and you have met your responsibility of taking care of your family, do you dream up ways of helping someone else? Or does all of our imagination just go to how we can heap up more for ourselves and and hoard it all? Do we think of others? The covetous heart doesn't. Because it excludes God, it excludes others as well. It has no room for people. That heart has no room for people. And then third, the covetous heart believes that life is found 
in possessions. Again, Jesus said, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Why do we still hold on to the disillusionment that we can find life in in more, more stuff? If only I had that. If only my life was this, then I, I would have it made. I'd, I'd finally be satisfied. I could rest, I'd be secure. If I only had this, only had that. And you know what? If we don't have that peace and contentment yet, the human race is never going to find it. When you think about world history, just, you know, big timeline in your head of world history. I mean, the vast majority of world history one side of the earth didn't know that the other side of the earth existed. That is population. One side of the globe didn't know that the other even was. Even longer than that, the fastest thing going as far as transportation goes was a horse. We think about what we have today just in our pockets. Just imagine, you know, a 19th century kid showing up in the 21st century and overhearing the 21st century kids saying how bored they are, how shocked they would be. What do you mean you're bored? Look at all this stuff that you got. This is ridiculous. How could we be bored? How could we be dissatisfied? But don't we have our eye out for that one more thing? That we, that one missing element that can finally satisfy? but nothing that you can ever lay your eyes on or hold in your hands this side of heaven can satisfy the longing of your heart. Nothing that is made can give you life. Nothing that is made has that function. Nothing. Life is found in God and in God alone. Not in the things that God has made. Why do we still constantly set ourselves up for disappointment? When will we learn the truth? The covetous heart is deceived about life and about where true life is found. Last, the covetous heart is clueless about judgment. Now we come to verse 20, and this is where the hammer falls again. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, Whose will they be? The covetous heart has no notion of judgment. The Bible says, it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. God is saying to this man, you are a fool. You speak to your souls of many days of the good life, but I am going to speak to your soul this night of its judgment. And of all that you have heaped up and of all that you have hoarded to yourself, what are you going to have then? And the answer is obvious. Not a measly penny. The covetous heart has no notion of judgment. Now, I say it's clueless about judgment. Maybe they acknowledge the the reality of judgment, but they put it out of their thoughts. That's what they have to do. That's what simply... What they do always. Do you believe that there is a life beyond this life? Do you believe that there is an appointment with God for your soul 
that you must keep? Do you believe in your heart that there will be an accounting, that there will be an answering to God? How foolish if we believe it and do not live accordingly. One way that we can look at that is to say, if we confess it, then we need to put our money where our mouth is and offer back to God all that He has given to us. And don't misunderstand me, please. I'm not asking... You see, if if this message was for you to give more money, if it was to elicit funds, we would take up the offering after the message. That's not what this is about. It is all that we are and all that we have belonging to God because He made us and because He has redeemed us for Himself. So if you followed your money flow over the last year, how similar would it be to the rich fool's flow of money? Do you exclude God and people from your perspective of your possessions? Do you exclude God and people from your plans? The worst mistake that we could make is to be like the rich fool. I think the second worst mistake that we could make is to say, I'm not like him at all. I hope everybody else is listening, but I I really don't need this. I'm good. Let's not put ourselves above him. Now, we might not be guilty in the same way, in the same form, to the same degree of darkness perhaps, but do you see yourself at all in this man? Does his perspective match yours at all? Your plans and what you're pursuing, what you prize in your life, is it in any way similar to him? As far as we see ourselves in him, let us repent. Let us renounce, let us turn our backs, let's put that sin to death and offer ourselves again wholly unto God. Because the covetous heart has no interest but self-interest. The covetous heart gives no service but self-service. And listen to me, the covetous person has no excuse at the judgment and no place to hide. We do not want to be like him, not in the least. Philip Ryken shows how sad and tragic covetousness is. This is more. Please realize, here's a parable. Here's a story. Jesus made it up. And yet, in a great sense, he did not make it up whatsoever. We know this is true. You know many who live like this. And we know that there is much resemblance in our hearts to him. But listen, how ironic that a man who... Um, has been having his own private monologue, has been overheard by God. How ironic that a man who thinks he will live for many years is down to his last few hours on earth. How ironic that a man who wants to keep it all for himself will have to leave it all behind. And how ironic that a man who gives not one thought to God must still answer to God for his soul. How ironic, how tragic, and according to Jesus Christ, how foolish. Listen to the word of the Lord. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, how many, how many kids you know 
um, when they are asked what they want to be when they grow up, say, I'm not really sure. All I know is I want to be rich. I just want to be rich. I want to have money. Don't just smile. Don't just, uh, don't just say, that's cute. Yeah, that's like me. You know, let's not be like that. Because listen to what the Word says. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The desire to be rich, that's a first desire. There are many more evil desires coming down the pipe that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, hear the word of the Lord. People of God, hear. As for you, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Jesus says about the fool and all the fools in verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We are rich toward God when we give to God everything we are and everything we have. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Philip Ryken asks and then he answers. He says, I am rich toward God when His glory is my highest goal, when His worship is my deepest joy, and when His fellowship is my greatest satisfaction. Is this true of you? I am rich toward God when I offer all my abilities for His work without reserve. I am rich toward God when I take the time to serve people in need and give the first portion of everything I get to Christian ministry. I'm rich toward God when I make the needs of the poor a priority in my financial giving and embrace a simple lifestyle that gives me more freedom for ministry. I'm rich toward God when I decide there are some things I will live without so that I will have more to give to people who do not even have the gospel. I'm rich toward God when I give and give until all I am and all I have is dedicated to His glory. No one has been perfectly rich toward God. Except for one. And that is God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in being rich toward His Father, laid Himself down for you and your salvation. Poured out His life's blood to purchase you as His own precious possession. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8.9 So that you might become rich. Rich, not in material blessing, not yet. Not in this age, but rich in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in this age and in the age to come. Listen to me. I'm closing. I'm done here. He said, Paul said, you know the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you? Do you know this grace? If you claim Jesus Christ as your Savior, your only Savior, He's yours. If you have bowed your heart and your head and your hands and everything you are to Him and said, you are my Lord and my King and you alone, then you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you do not trust Him for your salvation, and if you withhold who you are from Him, if you will not claim Him as your Lord, if you are still ruling yourself, setting the agenda, going your own way, then you don't know this grace. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. So fly to Christ. Give yourself up to Him. Renounce all of your self-righteousness and the self-rule of your life. Give yourself up. Repent and say, I am yours. You alone are my hope. You alone will rule my life. And you then will belong to God and belong to Him forever. Today is the day of salvation. But we see in this text that it is not guaranteed any of us that we will survive this night. That's Christ's warning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and we praise You for the immeasurable grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, He gave it all up that we might have life by His poverty, become rich in You and toward You. Father, and this is, this is the destiny of all who have Christ that forever to endless ages You will show to us the immeasurable riches of Your kindness in Christ. And I pray, Father, that there would, there wouldn't be a single person here, young or old, that does not know your grace for themselves. Pray that all, no matter how often we have flown to Christ in the last 10 minutes, we may have flown to Jesus in our hearts. Let us keep on coming to him. Keep on drawing us. Father, I pray that you would save. And I, I pray, Father, that we would have the conviction that all we are are all, and all we have is yours and yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen.